totally fine. My name is Patrick. I, uh, my wife and I have been going to church here for six to eight months, somewhere around then. Uh, I am a seminary student at Redeemer in Dallas, so I speak seminary. And uh, this week and, and last week are going to be a little bit concept-heavy if it's too concept-heavy. Just work with me a little bit. Um, I promise the next two weeks will be much easier on that front. Um, but I will read here in a second and then pray and then we will um, recap a little bit of what we did last week so that everybody's at least a little bit caught up and then we'll go with it. Uh, if you'd like to read with me, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 15 until verse 30. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we, all, we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that we can come here today and talk about your creation and the plan that you have to renew all things in this world. Lord, and you have graciously given us a role to play in that renewal, that we can use the good things that you have given us to serve the people that are around, that are around us, that we might show them a picture of what it means to be in you, that we might be, as the body of Christ, a vision 
for what life is supposed to be like when all the sad things come untrue. And so, Father, I pray that you would ease our hearts and my heart, Father, that you would open our ears to what it is that you have to say, that we might see you glorified among all things. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, If you didn't get a handout, there are handouts in the back. Does anybody need a handout? Mark needs a handout. Okay, great. We are, if you weren't here last week, going through the first chapter of this book. It's called Everyday Theology. If you would like a PDF of the 30 or so pages that we're going through, I have one. Be happy to send it to you. Uh, It was written by a man named Kevin Van Hooser. He is the professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And we talked about last week that when Brian and Ryan were talking about Christopher Wright's The Mission of God, that they were talking about God as a missional God. And that for these four weeks, we are going to be talking about our missional context, that we live in a world that requires us to be missional. But there are also, uh, we will talk about at the, at the very end, a missional method, how it is that we live out as missionaries within our missional context. But we spent some time last week talking about our missional identity, that God has made us to be missionaries. And we talked about being a missionary overseas and how oftentimes when you're overseas, you think of things differently than you do here. One of the, um, the best examples I thought that we gave is that when you go overseas, one of the things that you encounter is how much God is working in the world, that he is there and working and living and people are coming to Christ and things are being changed and being renewed. And yet when we come here and we're back in America, we often ask ourselves, what am I doing and what is God doing and why am I here? And part of the reason for that is because we live in a society, we tried to make the argument that the, the society that we live in now, the culture that we live in, is actually not Christian, but post-Christian. It is the, the Western world is the first time in history uh, where we are no longer Christian. And that is difficult for us primarily because it changes our identity from an established institution within the Western world to a community of people living on the margins. And when you do that, it changes the way that you think and act. You no longer, we no longer need to try and reclaim or dominate over culture in order to receive this established identity, but instead serve and love and walk in wisdom. That Christianity is not in itself a culture, that it is a way of life imaged after Christ who came and died for us and in him renews all things. And then we talked about Four things that culture does, that culture communicates, that it orients, it reproduces, and it cultivates. We define culture as world and works of meaning. It is the sea in which we swim. But we're going to talk about cultural texts, and cultural texts are things like going to the grocery store. And when you go to the grocery store, you encounter different things. You encounter magazines that give you a picture of what the good life is. And so as culture is communicating things to you, it communicates things to you both explicitly in slogans. And we talked about how during the Super Bowl, I encountered a Reebok commercial, and the slogan was, Be More Human. And it's telling you what it means, how you are supposed to be. But we also talked about how it's implicit, that Matthew McConaughey does Lincoln commercials where you have no idea what he's saying. But you know that Matthew McConaughey is awesome, 
because he's Matthew McConaughey and he's driving a Lincoln. And so he's showing you if you want to be awesome, then you need to drive a Lincoln too. But it's also saying that in many ways you need to be like him even if you don't drive a Lincoln. And that can be hard. And we talk about how that reorients us into different stories. And that these stories shape our life. As uh, James K. Smith says, we are not just thinking things, we are desiring beings. And stories and metaphor and images, these are the things that we traffic in all the time. And they move our affections. And they are the things that get us to do things. And so we said, if you don't want to know what to do, you have to know where you are. Or who you are. But to know who you are, you have to know where you are in the story. So today we're going to talk a lot about God's story. And hopefully what that will do is three things. One, it will place us in the world. It will place us in the middle of God's story. As some people say, the drama of redemption. That we have a role to play with skin and bones. That God is not just this thing that is out there. He is not in a box that we can sit there and study and pick apart. That in fact, we are always already suspended by what God is doing and who God is. Hopefully that going through this context and understanding the story will give us a purpose for living, that we are a royal priesthood, that he has given us a job because of who we are in his creation, and that it will give us a vision for the good life. As sons and heirs, we have an end in sight brothers and sisters, and in that we can try to live in the midst of that so that we might show people what it means to live in Christ. There are two ways I think this will be helpful in understanding our missionary context. Um, One is the quote at the top by John Calvin, who says, Now in describing the world as a mirror in which to behold God, I would not be understood to assert either that our eyes are sufficiently clear-sighted to discern what the fabric of heaven and earth represents, or that the knowledge we thereby derive suffices for salvation. As a matter of fact, because the Lord invites us to himself by means of created things, but with no effect except thereby to render us inexcusable, he has added, as was necessary, a new remedy, or at any rate mitigated the coarseness of our disposition by means of other assistance. For with Scripture as our guide and teacher, not only does he make plain those things that would otherwise escape our notice, he virtually forces us to behold them as if he had assisted our dull sight with eyeglasses. Scripture, Calvin says, are the spectacles of faith through which we see the world. And if we're wanting to understand what God is doing in the world, then we have to see that through Scripture. Otherwise, we're going to get totally lost. And that's going to be really hard. Another thing uh, I think is helpful in trying to describe what it is that we're about to do is, uh, does anybody know what the FBI or whoever looks at counterfeits, how they study in order to determine counterfeit money? You look at the original. And the reason that I use that is not to say that the things that we look at in the world are fake, but rather that many of the things that we look at are very, look very closely to the real thing. And yet they are cheap imitations that are worthy of nothing. They have no value for us. And we have to be able to take both the good and the bad and see the things that are alike 
in the world and affirm them and, in fact, walk into them. But we have to be able to critique the things that are perverted. Um, It may be helpful to understand. We talked about hospitality last week um, and the wonderful idea of hospitality and Christian hospitality and why that's important. But oftentimes, hospitality gets oriented into an idea of perfection. And so, for lack of a better term, we become a lot of Marthas instead of Marys. And we're worried too much about being perfect instead of serving the people that we're trying to love. And indeed, that is what we want to do the entire time. So, uh, the scripture serves as a corrective lens that enables us to see the world as it really is in the context of God's all-encompassing plan. And if you would like to uh, see where we're going, it's on the back. We're going to try and build this diagram on the back of what God is doing in the world and how it is that we can fit in it. Does anybody want to read Genesis 1, 28? Okay. He's going to read it. We will wait. 26 through 28. Yes. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female created them. Then God blessed them. Perfect. Thank you for doing that. So we see at the beginning of of the world uh, an environment of intimacy and freedom and dignity and delight and vocation. That we are with God, dwelling with him. That Adam is walking naked and unashamed in the garden. And we see a right relationship between God and man in the creation. That man worships God and God indeed communes with him. In that place. And man, likewise, has dominion over the creation to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. And the creation, in turn, bears much fruit. That there is harmony, and this is a right relationship. This shows what is the doctrine of the Imago Dei that we are culture makers. We are able to produce works and worlds of meaning because we are created in the image of God. The cultural mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, along with the charge to work and care for the world, is a mandate for producing culture. In these four tasks, ruling, filling, working, and keeping, we see culture in seed form. To be in the image of God is to be a culture maker. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is also helpful. You don't have to go there. It says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are in heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That God put us in the world to use his gifts for the good of creation. Does that make sense? But something happened on the next page. And it says, Paul says to the Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Paul is outlining here a full and comprehensive picture of the effects of sin. That sin is not just this thing that separates you from God, but in fact subjects all of the creation to a, bit, to a shadow of its former self. That instead of harmony and peace, we get exile and shame and violence and futility. Instead of worshiping God and having communion, we worship the creation and get futility. And we get lost in that. Instead of taking the good things that God created in the world and using them for the good of the world, we use them for ourselves and turn them inwardly. And so suddenly, the world isn't about God, it's about us. And we cannot hold that up. And that makes it very difficult. But here's the good news about all this. It's clear that some knowledge of God is universally available. This is called general revelation. That God in his creation, the rocks do cry out, as it were. Even though the creation is a, former, is a shadow of its former self, that God did create it and it shows how good he is. And so could it be then that the world that we live in, that popular culture, is not merely projecting vain imaginings onto a void, but trying to grapple with this dialogue, but trying, in fact, to understand how to live in the shadow of our former selves, that we were meant to live as images of God using things for the good of other people, but we don't know how to do that anymore. And so could it be as we look at magazines that want to make us more beautiful, that there's something to that beauty? That there's something to understanding beauty in right relationship to God rather than being perverted as lust and trying to understand 
what is good and what is bad about those things. The best analogy I've heard of this uh, is think of a giant beach ball. And I throw this giant beach ball into a swimming pool. And then I jump on top of the beach ball and I try to stay on top of it. Now, what is usually going to happen? I'm going to fall off. Yet, here's the thing. If the beach ball is the truth about God and I'm trying to hold it down underneath me so that it will not pop out, it is also the thing that is suspending me above the water. That the truth about God still holds us up, even though we try to push it down. And this is to say that when we talk about popular culture, we need not throw it away and just say, well, people are full of sin. And this is just bad. And so therefore, I neither need to get away from that or I need to change that wholeheartedly and dominate over it. No, it's much more complicated than that. That as we try to suppress the truth, we are also being suspended by it. That there is good and bad all over the place. That we are always already suspended by what God is doing. And therefore, we must start to see God working in and through the world. And we see that most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where in Philippians it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So Jesus ushers in the kingdom. That God creates the world, it falls with sin, it's perverted, but Jesus comes and he ushers in the kingdom. God now rules and reigns. Now the world is no longer only exile, but we are indeed forgiven. That the world is reconciled. That we now have a mission. As we said last week, God came in the form of a cultural human being, a cultural agent. And the incarnation reminds us that what God wants to make known of himself is not available per se in the world. That it's only found in Christ. The human cultural world provides the raw material for the gospel, but the gospel cannot be reduced to the means of its cultural production. Everything's in context is basically what that means. I want you to think of this in terms of Not only Christ coming in a body, but the body of Christ. Where Christ is the head. Which is us. And what does it mean for us to be incarnational? Oftentimes when we talk about culture, we talk about theologies of culture, how God relates to culture, we talk about these things in terms of worldview. That, oh, well, they just think something different than I do because they don't know who Jesus is. And so if I can just tell them the right things, then that will change everything. Even closer to home, if I could just tell myself the right things and try really hard to believe them, then that will work. 
But I personally have found that to be a huge, huge struggle. But what would it look like to actually walk in flesh and blood to try and practice living in light of the gospel? What we do here when we take communion, when we say aloud songs full of rich theology so that our ears might hear them, when we pray, when we fast as Jesus fasted, when we eat with sinners and give thanks to God. The incarnation provides a lived worldview that if Christianity is a way of life and we are to try and imagine what it means to be missionaries in a secular age, that we have to look to Christ to find that way of life so that we might be formed by God's story. Does that make sense? A little bit? This is why um, we have the liturgies. This is why we talk about spiritual formation. Because when we say the creeds, we say them like we tell, and I don't have kids, but I heard somebody that had kids say this one time. That you just tell your kid the same thing over and over and over and over and over again so that at some point he might actually believe it. That's what this means. That we can't just have arguments with people. And the idea that we can elect people and change the laws is going to change something is wrong. It actually excludes the other people, the other. And we're not meant to be in arguments. And we are not the victims here. We are the servants in the image of God, in this story that does have an end. At the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then our relationship with God is restored, that we can worship him in full communion, that he is with us. And the creation brings back fruit, and we have dominion over it, and we live in a perfected, renewed creation that is at rest, where all the sad things come untrue. When we talk about visions of the good life, that as culture communicates to you a vision of what it means to be human, of what the good life is, to be a certain person, to have a certain marriage, to drive a certain car, to not have anything to do with God in certain aspects of your life, you may have asked the question, then what is my vision of the good life supposed to be? And the answer is, this is the vision of the good life. All the sad things come untrue. Because God has given us 
the ability to rule, to, to take part in this. And if the culture dies, people die. But if we are here as the body of Christ, trying to enact shalom to the world, that we usher people into this kind of kingdom. It is vital to keep this in view. Why? Because, as we said yesterday, we are right in the middle of the kingdom that has already come and the kingdom that is not yet here. Because of the fall, we are no longer able to respond rightly to the cultural mandate. Yet we have not lost the image of God entirely. It has perhaps been best then to think of common grace as the Spirit's restraint and mitigation of the outward effects of our corruption, such that even fallenness does not wholly erase the Imago Dei. The Spirit ministers divine discourse to sinners as well as saints. It follows that there may be vestiges of truth, goodness, and beauty outside of the church in culture. I think C.S. Lewis explains it really well in The Weight of Glory, which is, has a lot to do with some of this stuff. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What is the hardest thing? The hardest thing about all of this is that it requires our imagination. And you may have thought that you could get all of this information on a piece of paper and you would have a comprehensive view then of what it is that God is doing in the world and all the things about culture and how God relates to it and what you're supposed to do. And I can't do that, period. And I certainly can't do that in four weeks. But what knowing where you are in the story of redemption requires is a renewed imagination of what it means to serve and love and be the church in the world. Because we live in a sea that doesn't want that to happen. It's as if we're in a room that smells really bad, but we've gotten so used to it that we don't even recognize it. This is the only way that we're going to be able to lift our eyes. And when we do that, this isn't just so that we can go and convince somebody else to believe in Christ. Yes, they should. And yes, I, we want that. And yes, that's what we're supposed to do. But it is bigger than that. And we have got to imagine life in Christ as bigger than that. God is not just fundamentally a judge that forgives you of your sin. And he is not just fundamentally a doctor that heals you. He is the creator and renewer and sustainer of the whole world. And you are made in his image to use that world for the good of humanity. And I would venture to guess that when you look at television and when you look at everything around you, that that is in fact what we're trying to do. Find the good of humanity. And so what have we done to do that? We've just stayed out of everybody's way. 
You can believe what you want. You can do what you want. God isn't there. And it doesn't matter. And that is hard. Why? Because it's, there is no morality in that. And we're constantly struggling with that. If you are a banker and you work in money and all you're doing is looking and working at money and dealing in transactions, then it would follow that unless you live in this story, that people become a primary transaction for you. That when you try to serve, you don't know how to serve because you're only used to getting something back in return. And that is not because you don't want to love. It's because everything that you do in your actions says the opposite. So how do we live in this world? We have to understand that in the tension between the already and the not yet, that God is working, that we have a role to play, and that it is not as easy as it seems. We are often oriented into stories that have root metaphors, like the ones of perfection. That hospitality is a means of being perfect. We have our own personal stories, where perhaps you feel like a victim, and that is a primary source of identity for you. Or, a common one, is individualism. That you are the center of the story. Even if God is there, and God is there, and he's given you stuff to do, but now, he's like, he's left you alone, and you just get to try and do it on your own. But if the kingdom is our root metaphor, then we might be able to imagine how to live a life that may look like a world free from oppression. That might look like a world at rest with one another. That might look like an image of God in the world. Not just for ourselves, but as a community of believers. As a body of Christ where he is our head. One's theology of culture, one's view of how God relates to culture will have a decisive bearing on the seriousness and openness with which the church approaches culture. Is it a battleground on which to engage the enemy? A classroom in which to learn? A sanctuary in which to worship? If culture is our everyday environment, we must pose the question, is it beneficial or harmful for our spiritual health? Is the cultural atmosphere polluted? And if so, should we flee or clean it? And what cultural world do we wish to dwell in? And I think, I know for me, as I turn this timer off so it doesn't go off, that this has really changed the way that I look at things. This, is, this changes the way that I engage with the world. This isn't just a gospel according to the Simpsons kind of thing. And that's part of it. And we're going to do a lot of that, where you look at a cultural text and you try to understand what it's saying and what is its vision of the good life so that you can interact with it. But that interaction is not just academic. That interaction is meant to be lived. Why? Because if you know what somebody's struggling with in the context of this story, then that can help you imagine a way to serve and love them.
that if we know the context that we live in in relation to this story, then it changes the way that we do this liturgy service. And I know that the guys that have put this together have thought really, really hard about it. That it could be more of a picture of what it means to live in the kingdom that will come. That our encounter is not the same as our encounters at a concert or somewhere else. But that we take communion every week. And I'll say this. It has to be loving. It has to be for that reason. It cannot be to be right. We cannot look at the world and try to engage it like warriors on a mission. We have to look to Christ who served it and who loved it and who walked into it and spent the time to listen and know who the people were and what it was they were doing and then put his life down. And we, as a community of believers, can do that. Let me pray, and then we can ask questions. Father, thank you for all that you have done, for the vision that you have given us, to let us in to know what the end of the story is and how we can play a part in it. And Father, I know that it is uh, a lot to try and deal with some of this stuff and and figure it out. And Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would draw near to us, that we might see you, that it would help us live and love. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Okay. Does anybody have questions about... Yes. Yeah, I do. Um, there's a, if anybody's interested, um, there's an article written by Dr. Dan McCartney, who teaches at Redeemer, about uh, vicegerency and this idea that God gave the cultural mandate to, to serve and work and have dominion over the world. And then in Matthew 28 is a continuation of that. Go and preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. That is actually part of what we're doing. And that's trying to put together the method and the context. That we live in this world to bring people in to the kingdom. It was described quite well to me um, by Greg Thompson, who's a PCA pastor, uh, at a conference a little while ago, that the renewal of creation, that at the end end of creation, it's a big banquet hall. And God is there at the banquet hall, and he's telling people, as in the parable, go and get some more and bring them here to the feast. That they are playing in the mud pies, and we are on vacation, and we need to go get them and bring them back. So yes, absolutely. That's a huge part of it. And it could be this week or last week, too.
Yeah. Okay, the question was, do I believe that someone has to be brought to a point of emptiness to believe in these doctrines? Um, I I think that I would say that that person, that there is an emptiness or a divide there. Um, There may be an intuition or not that God is working and created that person for a certain purpose. But I think when we talk about emptiness and struggle, it's about actually trying to work out that, that struggle of who am I and trying to figure out what that is. Um, particularly when you're not inserted into the story, but when the story is just this thing that's told to you to try and coerce you to believe something different. And now that story is brought together with political ideas and secular ideas and modern ideas and moralism and all these other things. And that's completely rejected. So yes is the answer to that question. I don't know if that means that somebody has to be like brought on their knees, just completely and utterly distraught. But I think it does take uh, some, well, divine um, intervention and humility that requires somebody to to start actually working out that salvation. Does that make sense? I, I think that it is one of the, the biggest things that has an effect. Um, and the reason is because I think that we live in a world that separates those things. And so it's really difficult to imagine a world where those things are, are together again. And where God is working in and through the world. And that's why last week we tried to use the, uh, the experience and encounter of being on a mission trip. Because oftentimes you, you don't have that disconnect as much as possible. But when you sever the relationship between the, the natural and the supernatural, um, you're on your own. And Christianity doesn't become a way of life. It becomes this moral code and thing to do. It becomes this culture to exclude people from. And I think trying to reimagine how to live as a community of believers where God is working in and through the world is part of the huge task that we have. And that's why, really and truly, that's why Van Hooser brings this up before he gets to reading culture itself um, and why it's important for us to, to keep talking about it and beat it into our heads because even if it is confusing on the outset, on the outset, it brings those two things together. And if we could start to imagine ourselves within the middle of this story and have it shape our lives in a very real way, then that begins to help us with the method.
the world versus protecting uh, our families and each other from the falsehoods in the world in light of, of what you teach about what you just talked about? Yeah. Um, he was talking about basically how do you um, care for your family uh, when you're having all kinds of different stories and things bombarding you from all different sides. Um, and I would say that one of the things that I find most compelling about that is uh, how we use the spiritual disciplines. That that is, in many ways, what they're for. That when we fast... Uh, and when we pray and when we uh, engage, when we steward and give these things, we're actually engaging in a world that has not yet come, where we are sharing and giving what we have, where we are relying on what it is that God is doing. Excuse me, when we are taking communion and living in that, and the more that we can actually move our bodies into that, as our mind shapes what we do, what we do is going to shape how we think. And so when you know and you already have the thought, hey, I'm trying to live in the story. I'm trying to understand the two kingdoms. I'm still working this out. When you're able to go to a place like this and have a liturgy that supports that, and when you're in your homes able to have a a rule of life, as it were, to cultivate a way of life that looks and is modeled after the life of Jesus, then that is going to reinforce those things to you. And it's going to allow you to respond wisely to them. Um, We think of wisdom oftentimes as kind of a set of rules that we determine, and so, you know, do you bake the cake or not? That kind of thing. And so baking the cake or not becomes this huge Christian value question um, and, in fact, may may be better um, encountered and and really dealt with on that kind of individual level of as I've walked in wisdom towards this, um, that's going to help determine what it is that I, what I do. Does that make sense? Okay. It is 1050. I think that's time. Thank you guys for your time. And,